What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to the Free Solo Podcast. On this episode, I was fortunate to sit down with leadership and mental performance coach Brian Levinson. Brian has worked with countless teams, athletes, executives, and organizations to improve their performance on the field, in the office, and in their lives. He is the host of the Intentional Performers podcast and author of Shift Your Mind, a book all about getting your mindset right to achieve your potential. I learned a ton from this episode, and I'm sure that you will as well. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. I'm sitting down with Brian Levinson today. Brian, so excited to have you here. Super fired up for this conversation. Ethan, cousin of Seb Little. I'm excited to chat with you. You're wearing a Raiders hat. So are you a Raiders fan? I am. Two and one to start the year. Uh, Defense needs a lot of work, um, but the offense is uh, showing promise. How does one become a Raiders fan? I'm assuming you're not from the West Coast, are you? I'm not. I'm actually from New Hampshire, and my dad grew up in Maine, uh, hated the Patriots going up. His dad was a big Pats fan. Uh, my dad did not like the Patriots quarterback at the time, Jim Plunkett. Um, so he was like off a whim, decided to be a Raiders fan. Just after that, Jim Plunkett left the Patriots, went to the Raiders, and won two Super Bowls. And now we have a signed Jim Plunkett football in our basement. Um, so that's story. how that kind of came about. That's amazing. You have no no qualms or no worries with them going to Las Vegas instead of being in Los Angeles. It's probably a good excuse for you to go out to Vegas and and go see the team whenever we are all allowed to go see games again. Um, so yeah, that's that's a good story. I like that. Definitely, there is a big asterisk on when that could happen, but uh, we'll see. And about that, with the uh, with COVID going on, I think we're in what is it month month seven now, just crossed into October. How are you doing? How has this impacted your life? It's definitely impacted it. And, you know, when, when I answer that question, I always feel like I have to answer it from multiple lenses because it impacts me from a business standpoint. Absolutely impacts my clients, impacts my family, my kids, my wife. Uh, my wife works in the school system. So this has been a challenge for her, certainly. And then I've got two small kids. So I've got a three and a half year old, a four and a half year old. I guess they're like three and three quarters and four and four quarters, but it's weird saying, or four and three quarters. Four and, my, my son said to me the other day, he was like, when you're four and four quarters, you're five. I said, yeah, you're, you're, you're better at math than your dad. It's, it's good. <laughs> Maybe you'll be able to go to Lehigh one day. And uh, so I, uh, I'm, I'm gen- pretty much good. I am somebody who, who loves being around people. I guess some would call me an extrovert, even though I think I'm not, I think I'm, I'm a mix. Uh, I think the introvert extrovert things are a little overrated. However, I love gatherings. I love community. I love being in an arena or at a concert or uh, at a farmer's market. And so those are things that I definitely am craving and am finding that I miss. I, I, I definitely love humans and love the connection that you get from a human in person. And while we are fortunate to have these wonderful computer devices and do video chats and phone calls and all kinds of stuff, I miss the gatherings. So generally good, sometimes feel a little stifled. I'm also somebody who's big on autonomy and I definitely feel like there is less autonomy in travel and who you can be around, when you can be around them. That That's definitely hit me. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
things. Some good, there's, there, there are positives to this. I've probably seen my kids more in the last seven months than I had for most of their life. There are times where we'll go grab lunch together. I'll pick them up. And um, I think there is, there's benefits to things slowing down. Um, you realize you can be really efficient with your time if you spend it wisely. So it's a mix for me. Uh, and I don't want to say it's by the day. It's sort of by the moment. And there are good moments. And then there are moments that kind of suck. And I think that's the reality of the environment that we're living in. Definitely. And I think that's something that we're all going through too, right? And everyone's having their own experience. Um, I like that piece that it's not necessarily a day-by-day thing. It's a moment-by-moment thing because um, that's just so true. Things shift on a dime. The world is moving so quickly right now as it always does. Um, and you just got to kind of take it as it goes. And that human connection piece that you mentioned as well definitely shows up in the work that you do. Um, so what is it that you do? Could you maybe walk us through kind of your background a little bit and what you're up to? So my background, I think about my childhood, to be honest, I think about being raised by just amazing parents, having two brothers. I mentioned community earlier. I was raised outside Washington, D.C. in, in just an awesome community. My neighborhood, I had my best friends, lived a couple houses down. So we played every sport under the sun, roller hockey, basketball, soccer, football, baseball, you name it. And just an idyllic childhood and really privileged in that way. And I went to Syracuse University. And when I graduated, it was interesting because you were talking about your, your story before we hit record. And you, you went to Lehigh thinking you'd want to be an engineer. I went to Syracuse thinking I might want to get into sports broadcasting, which Syracuse has a, a great school for that. Definitely. Did not end up doing that. Ended up studying sociology, African-American studies, political science. Um, was just interested in people. As you said, I think that's probably a, a through line in my life. And when I graduated, I raised my hand and said, who wants to hire the guy with a sociology major? And, and no one really raised their hand. <laughs> no, my interviews, people be like, yeah, I, I guess we could put them in sales. So they put me in sales. I was okay at that. I, I could have probably had a career in sales. Um, but along the journey, and this is really what gets to your, your question, I met a woman named Julie Ellian. And Julie at the time was working with a lot of top golfers in the world, uh, athletes in a number of sports. And we had lunch at the Cheesecake Factory, and I probably <laughs> ate more than I should have. And Julie sort of suggested that I could be good at what she does, that it's a growing field and that she thought I should dive in and she would be willing to mentor me and teach me. I was like, Oh, that, that sounds pretty cool. This is interesting, but I think I'd want to go to grad school and, and get a little more formal education. And right now I wasn't interested in it. So I stayed in sales for a couple of years circled back to Julie when I was really at a crossroads in my career. And we decided that it'd be best for me to go to grad school. Did that, studied sports psychology, finished that up and worked alongside Julie. And then uh, a little bit pretty early into our relationship formally, she said to me at lunch, not at the Cheesecake Factory, but at a different place, <laughs> and said, do you want to go off on your own? And I said, yeah, I think I do. And as I said earlier, autonomy is a big thing for me. So I've been on my own uh, in private practice and uh, along the way uh, have found working with people outside of sports to be really fulfilling. And I've sort of realized that it's not the thing that somebody does that I, that I love to work with. It's who they are. Are they curious? Are they open-minded? Are they driven? Are they ambitious? And those are the types of 
aspects that really determine whether or not I love working with the person. I don't really care what sport they play or if they play a sport. And so I started doing executive coaching. I went back to school again to Georgetown for that. And so today, uh, my private practice, probably 50% sport, 50% uh, executive coaching. And then I also coach sports coaches. Uh, and then I guess to, to bring it all together, and your cousin Seb is involved with this, once I got into coaching outside of mental performance coaching for sport, I met all of these amazing executive coaches like your cousin Seb, and I wanted to collaborate with them because I had felt like I had done pretty well just being a lone wolf and just attacking things and going after it and, and working hard and getting lucky and being connected, all, all these different factors that went into it. But I never really got to collaborate with people that are smarter than me, that bring different skills than I do. So together with a few other people, we created Strong Skills. And right now, Strong Skills is a coaching and training company. We, we really believe that mindset, introspection, communication, emotional intelligence, resilience, teamwork, leadership, those sort of skills are what makes us strong. So we want to change the game as it relates to how organizations think about teaching those skills, which they're typically called soft skills. And we want the world to start calling them strong skills. So that's the quickest version of my background that I could give you. I know I went for a while, but that's sort of the background as far as where I've been and where I am today. Definitely. And I think that's so awesome. I love that just like a lot of other entrepreneurial stories where, where people go out and do their own thing. Um, there was kind of that, that one starting point. And for you, it was nobody wanted to hire the sociology guy, um, which I think is something a lot of people will probably connect with. Um, and I always just love hearing people's paths into entrepreneurship and, and what drove them there. Um, Ethan, I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm serious. When I graduated from a private institution, nobody wanted to hire me. I, I, did, I did not have a job. I took a temp job and through that temp job, I got hired full-time as a sales assistant. And I won't bore your audience with how little money I was making, but um, yeah, I, I was not somebody who had it figured out by any stretch of the imagination in high school, in college. Uh, I had fun in college. I tell everyone I was really good at being present. I was so good at being in the present that I didn't set up my future. And uh, so, yeah, I graduated and uh, had to take a job of whoever would hire me. I definitely did not have my choices. And actually, it was one of the failures that occurred early in my life, I wanted to do Teach for America. And I wanted to go into inner cities in the US and teach. And for that, I thought my sociology degree would actually be really helpful. And they didn't want me. <laughs> they rejected me. I got through like the first round of interviews. And then they said, no, like, we're good. <laughs> and so I think it's important because I think a lot of times, especially at great universities like the one you're at, People have it figured out. I want to go work on Wall Street. I want to go be a lawyer. I want to go be a doctor. I want whatever it is that they want to do. And I did not. And I experimented with some entrepreneurial stuff in college, but nothing stuck. And I think it's really cool what you're doing because I think what you're doing is exactly what, I, if someone would say, oh, what should I do in college? I would say, just go learn from people. And it's really cool. You can create your own masterclass through a podcast. And so props to you for taking the initiative, firing up the mics and, and getting this started. Definitely. I definitely appreciate that as well. I'm curious, how did you take some of that early rejection in the job search? Did it, did it put you down or did it fuel you up? It definitely put me down. 
I would love to tell you that I was then driven. I look, I think I've always been a little bit tough. Like I think I've always had an I'll show you mindset. I remember getting cut from my basketball team and being like, F you, you're lost. You're missing out on the great Brian Levinson. And they didn't feel that way. <laughs> and they still don't feel that way. <laughs> but I definitely have a chip on my shoulder. I, I'm, I've always been small, uh, undersized. And so I've always been comfortable in that role of sort of saying, all right, I'll show you. Give me a bigger, more athletic dude. I don't care. Like, let's roll out the ball and let's see what happens. And basketball is my sport of choice because I was a stupid, stubborn young kid. And I was like, I'm short. Cool. Let's play the hardest sport for short people. Basketball. Let's do it. And I probably would have done football too if it wasn't for two days in the middle of summer, which just did not interest a 15-year-old version of myself. But I say all that to say, no, I think I was okay at handling rejection. I don't think it ever impacted my self-esteem or my belief in myself. So I think that's a gift. Either that was cultivated from a young age from my parents or there's something innate inside of me. I usually have belief, strong belief and conviction in myself, but I did not get feedback. I did not take it and then use it to get better and grow. And the rejection that is more recent is I mentioned I went to Georgetown and I got rejected from that program when I first applied. And that's when I realized I had grown quite a bit from the time I got rejected from Teach for America, you know, in 2006. So this was another, let's call it 10 years later. And this time around when I got rejected, I called the school. I said, hey, I'd love to get feedback from you. They said, we don't give feedback. I said, okay, well, what do you suggest? They said, reapply. Many of our students don't get in the first time. We actually only accept 25% of our applicants reapply. And I was like, okay, cool. Then I went onto the website. I looked up all of the professors and I started contacting them. And it turned out one of the professors, I actually realized that I knew his son and I grew up with his son. And so I reached out to that person. That person became a mentor for me. His name's Neil, Neil Stroll. I reached out to so many different people. And by the time I had reapplied, I had known people that founded the program. I had known people that were on the committee that decided who got in. I got a recommendation from a faculty member. And so I, for me, the moral of the story there, and I think it's worth sharing is I changed. I really, instead of just saying, F you, your loss, you miss out on the great Brian Levinson. I said, okay, I got rejected. Let's go find out why. Let's try to find out more about the program. And I got to tell you, the second time, when I look back at my essay the second time compared to the first time, completely different. And I, I really think it shows the growth that occurred in that probably year, year and a half where I went through that process of learning about the program, learning about myself. And that rejection came at a time, Ethan, where I was working with a couple professional sports teams, a division one football team, a couple division one athletic departments. I thought I was the shit and I, I needed a little bit of that humble pie at that time. So for me, I think there's a, a lesson there, which is when you face adversity, okay, you want to recover and, and fight and learn and learn. But even more than that, the first step you have to take is, is sort of why, why did this happen? What can I learn from it? And then you can use that grit or that chip on the shoulder. But for me, if you always lead with the chip on the shoulder, you're going to miss opportunities to learn and grow. And I think that's a, it's a really good example of how you can change because that was absolutely a different 
approach that I took to not getting something that I wanted. Definitely. Is that something that you, you've always done or had you previously gone in more with the, the chip side um, and not yeah, necessarily look, taking a step back? If I look at adversity, I usually would just be like, F you, I'll show you. And you know, sometimes that would fuel into working hard. Not always. A lot of times it was more, you can do this and you'll show them. And I still carry that. It's not, it's not gone. Like that is still, I remember when I don't get certain jobs or when things don't work out, I still have that inner voice. The difference now is I give space between that inner voice and my actions. So now I say, all right, that's my voice. I know, I know, I know that version of Brian third person talk. Gotta love that. <laughs> and I, I then say, let's go learn. Let's go grow. And in that, that space, I think I become a better version of me. Um, and then I will use the chip on the shoulder to go make it happen and, and use that fire and that fuel. And to be honest, to use the Georgetown example, if I didn't get in the second time, I was so committed to going through a program that I said to myself, if I don't get in, I'll just go do a different program. So it was no longer about me. It was more about the learning that I wanted to do. And that shift was pretty massive for me. And is, do you think that's something that we can, the ability to the switch between the chip on the shoulder and then the, the learning, do you think that's a skill that we can work on and consistently like improve upon? Or do you think that's something that we're kind of born with um, one way or the other? A hundred percent learn. I, I don't know. What I don't know is where do primary thoughts come from? I don't know. If you're religious, you might believe that they come from God. I respect that. I get that. But there's no science to suggest that we know where thoughts come from. So there are primary thoughts and then there's thinking. And for me, I, I have crazy primary thoughts, Ethan. I don't know about your primary thoughts, but if you go into my head in the first primary thought, like it, there are all kinds of weird stuff going on in there. And, and what I've learned to do is to develop a relationship with those primary thoughts and realize when it's serving me and when it's not, when to empower those thoughts and when to maybe slow them down, when to pause them, when to pivot them. And that to me is what psychology is all about is you've got a thought and you've got space then you've got behavior and action. And Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, talked about it's in that space that we really decide who we want to be. And so for me, that can absolutely be learned. And that's really my job with a lot of people on the mental performance side is, all right, you get a primary thought, you get a primary feeling, same thing. If someone walked in to your room with a snake right now, you would have a feeling of maybe fear um, right. or anxiety. That's normal. Then you have space and get to decide how you want to act. So just because we're angry doesn't mean we go punch somebody. Why not? Because we have space between the feeling of anger and the action of punching somebody. So we all have that ability. Every religion believes in free will. Uh, I do too. And so I think whether it's through meditation, whether it's through mental tools, which I'm sure we'll get into, uh, whether it's through a framework and a lens and a theory for yourself on how you want to handle hard things. Absolutely. Because for me, it's a hundred percent. It's, it's one of the biggest growth items I've had. I have strong emotional feelings. I have strong thoughts. I always have. And when I was younger, those would get me into trouble. Talk back to a teacher, be unafraid to fight the biggest guy in the class, whatever. I would just rely on those and just do it. And sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. As I've gotten older, I'm not even that old. As I've gotten more experienced, <laughs> 
And as I've learned this stuff, I've been able to create that space and make better decisions. And I really think it's, it's quite simple, but quite difficult. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that's something that is going to be different for everybody, right? Because you were mentioning some of those things. Um, first way I've ever actually, first time I've ever heard it said like that with the space in between, um, which I think is really cool. And we're all going to react differently to different situations, which makes this so complicated, but also makes it so fascinating. Yeah, you're, you're not going to jail for having a thought of wanting to hit somebody, but you can go to jail for hitting somebody. Right. But the thought is just a thought. And when you realize that thoughts and feelings are just thoughts and feelings, we all get them. If you can create a relationship with those thoughts and feelings and awareness around those thoughts and feelings, and then create space, you can slow the process down to then create action. And we'll talk about sports. I think one of the cool things about sports is when you can see that happen really quickly. So it doesn't have to be this long drawn out process, but you can see somebody recover within a second, or you can see them have a feeling that's not useful. And then they learn how to shift out of that. And you might not even notice it. Same thing with an actor or musician. You may not even notice it, but that internal world and that training that they've done allows them to shift out of the stuff that's maybe not helping them. Definitely. I think that's, that's a perfect transition into a lot of the, the work you're doing with the athletes, with businesses, um, with individuals as well. Um, what are some of the differences? You just mentioned athletes and some stuff that goes along with that. But what are some of the differences that you see working with athletes work versus working with businesses? Um, but then also, what are some of those similarities in, in thought processes and in different skills and habits? I'll start with similarities and then we can go to differences. So for me, the framework that I think of is you have an athlete and you have, let's call it a salesperson. Their job is to execute. Their job is to be ready to do the thing, bring in the money or make a basket, right? Like it is execution. So to me, they're pretty similar in that way, a salesperson and an athlete. In companies, they typically then have managers. I think managers are more similar to coaches. What is their job? Strategy, relationships, uh, X's and O's, putting people in the right positions to be successful. And so I think that's where there's similarities at that level. So I don't think the manager is not is necessarily similar to the athlete, although they can be. And I don't think the coach is necessarily similar to the salesperson. But I think as you look at management and then you look at the people that are executing, I think there are quite a bit of similarities. Differences, athletes are typically in their prime from 25 to 30. A executive or a salesperson, you know, in their 30s, they're just like starting to climb. And maybe their peak is in their 40s. So there's a different level of maturity. There's a different level of life experience that goes with that. There are other more complicated aspects like having a family and there are benefits to that. And from a performance standpoint, there can be downsides, especially if you're in relationships that are not necessarily healthy. Um, So I think age and, and that plays a role. I also think a similarity is that the best organizations in both are, are 
interested in developing culture and are interesting in using interested in using vocabulary in a powerful way so that the whole can be better than the individual so that we can leverage all of the talent and all of the gifts and form as a well-oiled machine i think about rowing as a sport people think of football as being the ultimate team sport or hockey as being the ultimate team sport i have great conviction that rowing is the ultimate team sport i've worked with rowers they literally have, if you're the fastest rower in the world, you have to slow your rowing down in order for the boat to go faster, which is pretty fascinating to think Definitely. about. You have to sacrifice your own talent to be aligned and in sync with the rest of the boat in order for the boat to go faster. And so I think teamwork is for a lot of sports baked into what they do every day. Whereas there are some businesses that say, hey, just do your own thing you know, be an individual and golf and tennis can be like that as well. And they're individual sports, but you do see differences as far as the teamwork, how they rely on each other. Uh, practice is a big difference. I think sports values practice more than the corporate world. They're, they literally call it practice. They spend time reviewing, getting better, but there are other organizations like the military where they do a lot of reflection. Uh, pilots do a lot of reflection. Um, so firefighters, do a lot of reflection. So I think there are similarities and differences. Um, obviously, the outcome being so in your face in sports and, and for the world to see, you either win or you lose. Companies and business can be more long-term focused. But then you have traders who think the same way on Wall Street. It's like you either win or you lose. So you can see a competitive spirit in sports that sometimes is not as prevalent in, in companies. Um, and then there is almost, you've got professional college, high school, there is, are these different levels that occur in sports. So there are differences, there are similarities, um, but those are some of the things that, that I see. Definitely. I love that. And how do you approach as a, as a coach coming in um, and trying to work with different organizations? How do you approach those conversations? Is it, you, you just know going in that this is the, the list of things I need to work on or do you kind of customize it to each, each individual, each organization? How do you approach those differences between the athletes and the business? It's actually a, a great question. For the athletes, and this is a good difference, the athletes want to know how. How do I perform better? Right. <laughs> and so for a lot of the athletes, I give them tools to help them perform better it doesn't always correlate. It's not as simple as a straight line. I do this and then you'll do better. There's a lot that goes into success in sports, but definitely more how and more tool heavy. Whereas in businesses, my job is to hold a lot of space, ask great questions, let them tell me where they want to go. Uh, I think I probably take more of an asking question role with the companies and with the individuals in, in business and probably more of a sharing and teaching and training role when it comes to athletes. I also really believe in collaboration. So even in sports, when I work with a sports team, it's my job to collaborate with the head coach to figure out what messaging is important to that person, what culture they're trying to create, and then to, to use them. And I say use them like integrate them into the work that I'm doing. I think that's similar in business. My job is to understand, you know, what are they trying to accomplish? How are they trying to get there? Um, so I definitely do a lot of probing uh, on both fronts before I just put out whatever it is that I'm going to do. 
Um, so there are differences, but I, I would say sports is more tool heavy, whereas business, especially in business, I tend to work with leaders and executives. We're often talking about strategy and leadership, whereas in sports, I often am, am working with athletes where it's more how do they do their job and focus on themselves. Definitely. And I, I like the, the probing piece and asking questions. It reminds me a little bit, I'm not sure how you familiar you are with the design thinking process where you have to go in first and, and understand the real problem, not just your perceived version of the problem. Um, and then iterate off of that and prototype off of that to what is the ideal solution going to be to actually have the most impact where if you think consumer X needs product Y, but they really need Z, um, you wouldn't get that unless you, you actually ask them and go directly to the source to see what's going on. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really good piece. And yeah, then, I've, had on, I've had on two people on my podcast in other fields and been blown away by similarities between how I think and how they think. There's a guy named Daniel Stillman who, who uses design thinking to train communication. Um, and then there's a guy named Bob Bordone and Bob actually connected me to Daniel and Bob teaches negotiation. And so negotiation, they talk about probing, uh, and design thinking is probing. And I think coaching great coaches are great probers. They ask questions and then based on what they hear, they help their clients connect dots, notice patterns, come to realizations so that they can become more aware and then create a action plan for how they can show up. So you mentioned earlier is your learning to handle rejection or adversity, something you learned or, or, or was it something you were born with? That is the work. It is creating a plan for how we want to handle things in the future. So now I know when I get rejection as uncomfortable as it is for me. And as much as I want to say F you to the person, I try to tone down the volume on that voice in my head and say, let's take the feedback and then you can decide if it's useful or not. Uh, and so not looking at it as constructive criticism, but just listening to it as feedback. I also think the last thing I'll say on that front, it matters where the feedback is coming from. And I think too often we just listen to all feedback and we don't qualify it. And Brene Brown talks about this a lot where she says, I want to know from the people that are in the arena. If you've written a book, then talk to me about writing how, about my book. If you've given a talk on stage, then okay, let's have a conversation. But she wants to talk to people that are in the arena. And I think qualifying who's giving you the feedback is something that we don't always do for ourselves. And sometimes that can lead us down a path that's, that's not necessarily helpful. Definitely. I'm sure that comes into a lot of your conversations with coaches. Um, Cause I'm sure coaching coaches is a lot different than coaching athletes or students or employees at a company versus the managers, the teachers, the coaches. Um, they probably want to know that you know what you're doing coming into their, their locker room, their office space. Um, how have you found the, some of the, the differences, the nuances of coaching coaches and actually talking to leadership versus going in and talking to a team? It's interesting. I talked to a Division I basketball coach one time. And he was interested in getting coached. And I said to him, I don't think it matters how much your coach knows about basketball. I happen to know a lot about basketball. But I'm not necessarily doing myself favors by saying that, but I'm not sure it matters because a great coach as it relates to my world is their number one skill is going to be asking questions. Their number two skill is going to be listening. 
Their number three skill is going to be putting patterns and connecting dots. Their number four skill might be to provide tools and frameworks. But nothing in there suggests that I'm going to tell them what they should be doing and give them advice on how they should be running their offense. I, I don't care how much basketball I know. I've been around enough basketball coaches at the highest levels. I, I am not qualified to do their job, period. So the knowledge of the game in some ways is irrelevant. Now, maybe we can get places faster because he doesn't or she doesn't have to explain the nuances. But even when I'm working in industries that I know nothing about, I don't care about the nuances, to be honest, because it's not my job. I'm focused on how they can show up for others, how they can show up for themselves. And what they are doing is irrelevant. And I know that to be true because I work with people in real estate, insurance, tech, uh, Bitcoin. Like I've literally worked with people in all the government contracting. I don't know their businesses inside and out. And I honestly am not sure it matters. So I'm not sure I answer your question. I think you were sort of asking, uh, you know, what could get in the way maybe of working with those coaches. I, I think you have to sort of stay in your lane and know what you're there to do. And I think being a head basketball coach or being a CEO of a company is hard. It's lonely. It's, it's difficult work. And so to have somebody that can create space for them to explore how they want to show up and then the impact and the influence that that person has on the rest of the organization is massive. So that's why I love working with all kinds of different people in all kinds of different fields because it's fun. I get to learn about their industry and I then get to ask them questions, hold space for them and help them figure out where they want to go. Um, but it's much more driven by them than driven by me. Gotcha. And I, I kind of a, a follow-up to that. Um, are coaches ever less, coaches, managers, executives, ever less responsive to your coaching because they're not used to being coached. Because if you're, you're a student, you're an athlete, you always have somebody kind of telling you what to do, but these coaches don't necessarily do. And so first of all, if I, I don't really tell people what to do. So it's a different relationship. So when I say coach and I'm talking about my, my coaching, I'm not telling my head coach what to do. I'm asking them questions. Now, some of that head coach's job is to ask questions to their players but a lot of the other time it is telling them, no, you need to be in this spot. You need to be in this space. So their job is different. We use the term coach and it's probably too broad. So the sports coaching is a lot of telling people where they need to be. I think a great sports coach also will ask great questions and help their player learn from the inside out as well. So that, that's the first piece. The second piece I'll say is it, there is something interesting that has gone on in sports to your point. The reason why the executives that I work with, a lot of them are open to being coached by me is the argument is, well, Serena Williams has a coach. Michael Jordan had a coach. Why wouldn't you need a coach? And they say, yeah, I should. So they actually use sports to make the argument that the executive should work with a coach. What's fascinating is executive coaching has become really pretty accepted in, in corporate world. It's not it's not weird if a CEO has a coach, it's almost accepted. When I ask a lot of these sports coaches, Hey, who's coaching you? A lot of times they'll talk about a mentor or someone who's been in that seat before, but the formal coaching process that I do with the executives 
it's, it's more difficult with the sports coaches. And to your point, I think sports is a paranoid industry uh, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of sports coaches are worried that someone will steal stuff from them and give it to their opponent. It's so zero-sum game. You either win or you lose that a lot of times sports coaches won't open themselves up or share or be vulnerable. And as a result, they carry all the weight on their shoulders. And that's why you see a lot of sports coaches that are not healthy, either in their diet or their sleep or how they're thinking about their family or whatever it might be. And so one of the things I'm really passionate about and I've started to do is when I work with a team, I work with the head coach. And that work is a little bit different than when I work with an executive because we are also thinking about the culture and what workshops and team meetings and stuff like that. But in, in a sense, my hope is that sports coaches will continue to leverage ex- executive coaching type systems and processes so that they can better show up for their people. And I actually think that if they do that, they will benefit immensely. And I've seen it happen and I'm a big believer in it. So I think it's the next frontier in sports that no one's really talking about. Uh, Everyone talks about sports psychology and mental performance coaching. And a lot of teams now hire people to do that work. But I think the unfair advantage is really in coaching, coaching the head coach, Um, the impact and influence they can have on the entire organization. Definitely. And I think that's something I like how you called it the next frontier um, because it's something that isn't talked about, right? You think the coach is the, the top guy in the room, um, but how can he be better? We can all improve um, in some way. So I love that. They are, that. they are the top dog, right? Like it is their organization, their team. And I've made mistakes along the way where I probably overstepped my bounds. And so I think a big thing for people in my industry is to, to always, our job is to bring out the best in that head coach. It is their program. How do we help them guide and steward that program? And for me, I'm cool lurking in the shadows and giving all that I can to that person so that that person can then be in service to their people. And that excites the hell out of me, Ethan. It really does. Because for me, I struggle with how can I make the biggest impact and influence that I can, it's limited if I'm working with one athlete or a couple athletes. Whereas right. if I can help a coach create a culture in an organization that everybody rises, that excites me. And um, yeah, that's, that's a lot of the work that I'm starting to do. And that's a lot of the work that I'm focused on going forward. Definitely. There's a hundred percent that trickle down effect, whether it's a coach in a, on a sports team or an executive in a company if it starts at the top, it's going to make its way down um, because like you said, they are, they are that top dog. Um, and then in addition to coaching, you're doing a lot of other really cool stuff and providing a lot of other really cool resources and, and content for, for everybody um, between your podcast, Intentional Performers, um, the Strong Skills Programs, um, your book, Shift Your Mind, which is coming out here. I'm sure we'll talk about that. Um, how have you been able to take coaching and then deliver it in so many different forms, um, podcast, book, workshops, individual coaching, everything. It's all a little different. And I am somebody, I remember in grad school, our professors would ask, what is your niche? What's your thing? Is it golf? Is it soccer? Is it basketball? And I said, my niche is, coaching (laughs) like it's it's helping people get from where they are to where they want to go and 
that's what I am obsessed with. I am obsessed with how do you get people to unlock their potential? How do you get people to see new possibilities that maybe they weren't aware of or they were blind to before? And so all of the vehicles that you're mentioning are opportunities for me to do that. And so the podcast I fired up four years ago, and um, it's an opportunity for me to learn. It's an opportunity for me to share. And it's an opportunity for me to connect. And those are things that I'm just learning, sharing, connecting are, are big, big, big pieces to what I do. So almost everything that I do involves that in some capacity. Uh, for the book, I had to learn so much before I could share it. And now as a result, I get to connect with people that, you know, I've gotten messages already from people that are watched a video that you watched and said, this is really interesting. I, I'm excited to learn more from the book. So I'm excited to connect with people who are not my friends or my parents who read the book, the podcast. I've even connected with so many people uh, as a result of that. So I think everything that I do is an opportunity to learn, to share and to connect. And those are, that's, that's what I'm drawn to. I, I love connecting with people. I love connecting great people together and I love sharing knowledge. So I also have a newsletter that goes out every week. It's Brian's message of the week. It used to be message of the day. I probably did a daily message for seven years. And then I said, eh, yeah. I probably need to, you know, <laughs> slow this down a little bit and do weekly, um, you know, on social media. I love Twitter because I think Twitter is a great place to share and connect. So I, I kind of think all of it, podcast, book, I have an assessment tool, I love creating stuff too. I'm somebody who's pretty entrepreneurial and innovative. And um, I think that's something that makes me a little bit different. I'm not too fearful of creating something and then saying that, hey, that didn't work out. That doesn't really scare me too much. So yeah, I, I think all of it has to do with trying to leave this world a little bit better and to help people step into their, their best selves. And uh, you know, I've been fortunate to learn from a lot of brilliant people and I'm just an amalgamation of all of those people. Someone that read my book said, Brian, this isn't a book that is just something you put together. I know you spent four years working on the book, but you actually spent your whole life working on the book. Right. Even if it wasn't conscious, what you're doing now, Ethan, if you want to write a book in 15 years, what you're doing now will influence and will be a part of that experience in that book. So the book process, I didn't, I was kind of surprised at how many other people's stories are involved in that. Um, how much my life influenced how I saw it. And I think too often we take for granted our, our upbringing, our college experience, all of that's a part of who I am and, and my book and, and my environment. So uh, I'm just really grateful for all these people that have come into my life, poured into me, given me patience, grace, uh, you know, a kick in the ass when I needed it. And uh, yeah, so it's all about just sharing, connecting and learning. Definitely. And, and tell us a little bit about what the book is about. Yeah, we just talk about it. Uh, so the <laughs> book, as you said, is called Shift Your Mind. It's about nine mental shifts to help you thrive in preparation and performance. So how long ago was it? Five, maybe six years ago. I read Tom Coughlin's book, Earn the Right to Win. And for those that don't know who Tom Coughlin is, he actually went to Syracuse. Um, I think he went, or he coached at Syracuse. He's involved with Syracuse in some way. In some way, but, shape, or form. In some way. But he really, he coached the Jacksonville Jaguars for a while and then really made his mark with the New York Giants winning two Super Bowls. And 
he's kind of an old school guy, military background, and the book talks about that. But during the read, it's a lot about how he had to change when he was working with Michael Strahan and the New York Giants and helping them and how he had to evolve and, and change. And in it, there was something that he said that really stuck with me, which is you have to be humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really cool. And that's really simple. And that's really profound. And so I started sharing that with my clients. We started talking about how do you build confidence? And we talked about through humble preparation. And then we started to write on a pad of paper, what do you need for preparation? And what do you need for performance? And whether I was working with a golfer, a basketball player, baseball player, soccer player, they would all come up with these lists. Hmm. And basically there was a realization and an aha moment for me that your preparation mind is actually different than your performance mind. And it's not just humble and confident. It's also about taking preparation as, as if it's a job and as if it's work and then taking a performance as if it's play, you know, focusing on the future in preparation so that you can focus on the present in performance, focusing on perfectionism in preparation and then being adaptable in performance analysis and preparation, instinct and performance, experimenting in preparation, trusting process in performance, uncomfortable in preparation, comfortable in performance, fear in preparation, fearless in performance, selfish in preparation and selfless in performance, humble in preparation. And I actually argue that you should be arrogant in performance. So I take Tom Coughlin's comment up a notch. So as I started to see this framework and I started using it with my clients, a book started to emerge and I couldn't get it out of my head. And I would be watching an interview with Beyonce and she'd talk about her preparation mind and then her performance mind. She wouldn't use preparation mind and performance mind. She would just say, I have to perfect. I have to perfect. I, can, I have to perfect so that I can then be out of my head when I'm on stage. I'd listen to Kobe Bryant talk about his work ethic and how he'd constantly work and then how he had to play basketball and the joy that comes with playing the sport. And I'd, I'd hear it all over the place. I'd listen to Bill Gates talk about his mind and how he thinks about things. So it just kept hitting me in the face to the point where I started to write. And honestly, Ethan, I could have probably written a thousand page book on these shifts. I thought that would be a bit much and probably a little redundant. So we distilled it down. And, and now the book is focused on nine of these shifts, but they're not the nine. There's over 30 that we came up with. And I'm sure if I sat with you, you could even come up with even more. So I think too often we say, be humble, be selfless. Don't fear failure. I saw it today on Twitter from somebody I really respect. Yet when we're in the arena, we need to be selfless. But when we're preparing, we need to take care of ourselves and be selfish. When we're preparing, we actually have to have a little fear of failure. We have to worry. We have to have some concern. I just saw a goal cast video with Mike Tyson talking about how he would fear, fear, fear. But then when he got in the arena and when he got, you know, in his time in the ring, he thought he was God. Like he had this arrogance and fearlessness that nobody was going to take anything from him. So this shift occurs and I've seen it in, in business. I've seen it with doctors. I've seen it with lawyers. I've seen it and listened to it from uh, pilots. So it's, it's kind of everywhere if you start to open your eyes to it. And it's why I'm so passionate about the book because I think once you see it, you can't really unsee it. And you realize that preparation is all about getting yourself ready and competent and growing and learning back to the experience that I went through getting rejected from Georgetown. Then, all right, let's go learn. Let's get ourselves ready and competent. But when it's time to then execute and, and be in the class, I needed something 
wholeheartedly different. And when it's time for me to present when I'm in class, I remember presenting on body language and, and emotion in that class. That was not my time to be in my preparation mind. That was my time to be in my performance mind. And the last thing I'll say is then there's this thing called practice, which sports does really well, as I mentioned earlier, which is about getting yourself ready, but also about this repeated proficiency and learning how to do a skill. You have to do it over and over again. I'm sure for you, you're better today than you were when you first started podcasting because you're, you're repeating it. You're getting to practice it, work on it. And part of the practice is also executing and part of the practice is also preparing and learning and growing. So that's essentially what the book is about. You've got your preparation mind, your performance mind, and then hopefully a great practice involves both the preparation and the performance. Brian, hearing you speak about that makes me even more fired up to read it because now you get to see the emotion that in the time and the effort, the energy, um, everything that's gone into this book. So I'm fired up. Um, I think it's just so true that you have to be willing to prepare. Um, you have to be come game time, just ready to go. Um, I think when you were going through some of your examples, Beyonce, Kobe, Mike Tyson, I was thinking a lot about LeBron and what he does to, to be ready every night. Um, I think you get him in the fourth quarter and he has to make a game winning shot. He's not nervous. He's not scared. He just puts that shot up um, and trusts everything that he's done up until that point. Um, we could talk about LeBron because I think LeBron grew in this, in this element. When he was in Miami, I think he did have fear and brought some fear onto the court. I think he was not playing basketball. He took it almost too seriously because there was all this pressure for him to win. Not one, not two, not three, right? How many rings that he declared. Right. And, and I think when he left Miami, you saw him get his joy back on the court and he's always been a joyful guy. He's someone who loves to play basketball. He's not Kevin Garnett or Russell Westbrook. He's not at his best when he's playing angry. Even last night I was watching the NBA finals. I don't know when this will record. They crushed the Miami heat. There was a play, I think at the end of half, it was at the end of half where Kyle Kuzma had like a floater, but it was after the time uh, finished and LeBron went, grabbed the ball and did a reverse dunk. Like it wasn't even live. You remember? Did you it see was that? so sick. It was so sick. Like, bro, I can't do that on my five foot Fisher price hoop with my kids. And he's just like, boom, boom. And I think LeBron has learned that he needs to play the game. He needs to play with joy and prepare as if it's work. So what am I putting into my body? How much sleep am I getting? Meditation. He's doing all this work so that he can go out and just play freely. And uh, yeah, he, I think what's cool about him is he's really grown. There's no question. He's six foot eight, six foot nine. He came into the league as the most talented basketball player of all time. I don't think anyone, we can all debate on what the end of his career will look like, but the beginning of his career, there's never been a more talented player to enter the NBA. And so there's no question he's gifted and there's no question he has things that you and I just don't possess. But what he's done with his mind over the last 15 years or whatever, 17 years is remarkable. And his sustainability is also remarkable. There are plenty of guys who come in talented and by the time they hit 30, they're out of the league. There are plenty. And so I, that's where I give him a ton of credit is he's evolved, he's grown, he's cultivated his preparation and his performance mindset. Yeah. And I think the, the awesome thing about the mind and, and a lot of the work that you do is that it's, it's anybody can work on it. I'm not going to wake up tomorrow uh, and be LeBron James. Um, like you said, you're undersized, totally relatable on this end. Um, and 
we can't do a lot of the things he can physically, but there's nothing stopping us from training our mind in the same way that he does, which I think is really cool that it's accessible to anybody. Um, and you don't have to be a pro to think like a pro. You don't. I can play basketball on a Wednesday night with a bunch of my buddies who are not in great shape and have had knee issues and, you know, no one's dunking in that game, but I can think like LeBron. There is literally nothing to stop me from thinking like LeBron. So I do, I think our, our talent sets the floor, but our mind sets the ceiling. And we all have gifts and talents in this world. All of us, everybody has an inner genius. What you do with that, that's sort of between you and you. And that's where I don't think that everything's all mental. I just think the mental side is what brings out your potential or hinders your potential. And it can get in the way. There's no question. And, and that's why I really value the work that I do because I just think it's a game of either potential or possibilities. For people that are executing, it's how can I execute. For people that are thinking about strategy and influence and leadership, it's about seeing possibilities and seeing different avenues to go down. And I love playing in both of those spaces. Definitely. And I'm curious, how do you on your, your Wednesday night basketball league, get your mind in the right spot. So you start thinking like LeBron, what are some of the tricks and tips that you have to get your mind in that right space? Not even just on the basketball court, but just, just every day. Yeah. I played golf yesterday. So that's probably more relevant since I haven't played basketball in a while since the, the elementary school gym is not having us, but I think it's, and I played yesterday. I shot like one of the best rounds that I've ever shot. And for me, it's about self-talk. How am I talking to myself? What language am I using to talk to myself? It's about using uh, reset mechanisms. So if I hit a bad shot, sometimes I'll clap my hands or I'll snap my fingers to reset. Um, it's about breathing and taking a breath and routine. Um, it's about when you start thinking about the score and in golf, you, you, you think about the score. You literally 100%. have to write your score down. I, it's not that I'm not thinking about my score. It's just, I don't direct my attention to it. So if I'm aware of where I'm at and where I'm sitting, I'm like, okay, cool. Now let's direct my attention to what I want to do with this shot. Um, so it's that sort of stuff. It's being aware of how I'm carrying myself and my body language. How fast am I walking? Is my chest out? Is my head up? Am I communicating? Am I talking to the other people I'm playing with? Uh, there are times, especially yesterday when I was playing really well, where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to go for a walk on my own. Like, and I'm just going to look at the sky and take it all in. Um, it's about being present and arrogant for me in that moment. Um, so those are some of the things that I do that are, are tools. It's about directing your attention to the spot that you want to hit, whether that's a putt or a spot on, you know, a tree or a leaf and, and really narrowing my focus. In basketball, things move so much faster. So for me, it's about competing and moving my feet and, um, you know, talking. I'm a big talker. I was a point guard growing up. I'm still a point guard. The only gift that I still have from my childhood is that I can pass. Everything else is, is just <laughs> diminished at this point. But so I take pride. I'm like, okay, let's set someone up. When I'm struggling, all right, let's just set someone up. And so playing to my strengths and knowing how I play. And then in life, yeah, meditation's great. Exercise um, is, big, is big for me. Reading, writing, podcasting. For me, I'm fortunate because the work that I do is so enriching. Like I'm learning during our conversation right now. I learn a lot from talking out loud. Um, so, you know, I, I do some other things. Like I try to be home for dinner every night at around six so that I can see my kids. I think that's really important. And I often try to cut my day off. There are some times where I'm not able to do that, but as much as possible, I try to cut my day off so that I'm there for my family. Um, so yeah, there's things that I, that I do 
to try to make sure that I'm practicing what I'm preaching. Definitely, man. And I'm uh, you just mentioned learning and conversation, which is the whole point of, of why I started the podcast. And I'm excited to, to run this one back and listen to it um, and really just soak in everything that you've shared today, all the stories, all the insights. Um, you're definitely a wealth of knowledge and I uh, appreciate you being on here. Um, before we kind of wrap up, do you have any other final thoughts, uh, any insights that, that you want to get off? You, you said something about my emotion and energy when I started talking about the book. I'm fired up about it. And I have done all the preparation that I could. I've <laughs> focused on the preparation mind was real for me with the book. I had to do that. And for me, I'm actually better at the performance mind than I am the preparation mind. And so I really had to drill down on the preparation mind. And I, it's done. Like it's, it's as good as it can be. Um, and so it comes out and you know, I'm sure there will be people that don't, don't like it or don't agree with it. And I think if you're going to do anything worthwhile, there's always going to be critics. And so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of at peace with that. It doesn't mean it's not going to hurt uh, to hear someone not like it, but I think it's okay. Like it's, it's, it's what I'm signing up for. And if everybody loved the book, I probably wouldn't have written a strong enough book. I think I want people to think I want them to think about their mindset and preparation, their performance mind. I want them to be intentional with it. And uh, yeah, so I mean, if, if anything resonated with you today, I think the two places where you can learn more about how I think and what I'm passionate about are my podcast, which is Intentional Performers, and the book. I, I poured everything I could into the book. You know, people, when you write a book, and I didn't know this, always say, well, when's the next one coming out? And I look at them and I say, this took me four years of all kinds of crazy work. And I'm not a full-time author. I've got a lot of other stuff I'm doing. Would you just chill? <laughs> let, let's let this thing go out. Let's see how it does. And I'm just, I'm excited to share it with the world. And uh, I hope it's helpful for you. I hope it's helpful for your listeners. And Ethan, I'm grateful that you gave me this platform to share some of the things that I'm passionate about. And man, oh man, I'm, I'm so excited for you starting a real intentional learning process outside of your college education at the age that you're at it's, it's man, if you can just keep doing that, it'll, the rest will take care of itself. So keep learning, keep growing, keep connecting and uh, keep sharing. So appreciate you having me on and, uh, just looking forward to getting to know you in person one day. Definitely. I, uh, I look forward to that day and I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time today and, and really just being a wealth of knowledge and, uh, and taking the time. It really does mean the world. Thanks, Ethan. I would like to extend a huge thank you to everyone that took the time to listen to today's show. As always, all episodes are available on all major podcast streaming platforms, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. To stay up to date with us for the latest content and news, please go check out our Instagram at freesolopod.